Uh, our scripture for this uh, morning is from Matthew 6, 9 to 13. It's the Lord's Prayer again. Uh, and we're going to go through the second half of it this, uh, today. So here we go. Um, it says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Uh, we are going through a series on Jesus' teaching. And it's one I've been really excited about because I feel like I'm just now starting to understand it. <laughs> uh, last week, we went through the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, uh, which said, Hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and give us this day our daily bread. We saw that this prayer is, in general, a really humble one. The Pharisees and the Gentiles pray in such a way as to be seen by others, and they pile up praises so that maybe God can see them and consider them worthy because of their pretty words. But Jesus has a different kind of prayer in mind for his people. It's a humble prayer, and you can see that humility clearly and practically in every phrase. When Jesus says, hallowed be your name, he isn't simply stating a fact, but he's asking God to do something to make his name holy. While God himself is holy, his name and reputation fall short of the reality because God's people fail to live up to his reputation. When we sin, we give God a bad rap because we as Christians have the name of Christ pinned on us. When we pray, make your name holy, we are praying for God to fundamentally change who we are so we can bear his image rightly. Jesus teaches us to pray for God's kingdom to come to earth and set everything right which is exactly what all the Jews at this time are constantly praying. But he adds the phrase, your will be done. In other words, Jesus is calling his audience to imagine a different kind of kingdom, which might not be the cathartic reverse of fortunes that the Jews might have wanted. It wouldn't be some revenge for half a millennium of, of oppression, but the true king showing his glory by giving himself up in love on the cross so that forgiveness of sins could be spread to the whole world. And finally, after all that, Jesus prays, give us today our daily bread. It's only in this context of the whole redemption of the story of the world that he prays for daily bread, because it draws us out of the mundane to see the bigger picture of God's rescue plan for humanity. And then it brings us back to see that mundane stuff, and that you see stuff like bread has a ton of meaning, because it is the means by which God is going to save the world. And that brings us to the second half of the prayer and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What's really interesting about the way that Jesus says this is that it doesn't seem like he saw give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as entirely separate thoughts. There's not a full sentence break here, but just an and in there. They seem unrelated, don't they? But it wouldn't be quite as surprising if we remember the way that, God, that the Bible talks about God's forgiveness. Sin is what exiles us from God's presence. It happened in the Garden of Eden when humans were exiled from God, and it happened when Israel's sin exiled them from God's presence in the Promised Land. God's forgiveness, on the other hand, allows us to come back to his presence. And that's a big deal, because we were made to live in God's presence. And if we don't live in his presence, we slowly self-destruct. We do all kinds of things that we think will be good for us, but ultimately destroy us. 
We think being selfish just this once is going to make us happy. But in the end, it just turns you in on yourself because you were made to give yourself up in love. What we see is that the daily forgiveness of God is just as much a constant need for us as the need for our daily bread. Because we need God's presence in order to survive. We need God to be there or we will destroy ourselves. We were made to be in God's presence in the garden. So trying to do stuff on our own out here just won't work. We weren't made for it. And the people at Jesus' time recognized this. They knew that they needed God's presence to survive. As a tiny backwater nation of Israel that exists at the mercy of foreign rulers, it was hard to have any kind of illusions about that. It was a miracle they even existed in the first place. But God wasn't with them because when he was, they sinned and they sinned in ever worse ways. So their punishment was that, just like in the Garden of Eden, God withdrew his presence from them and things didn't go well for them. All kinds of Gentile foreign nations came and oppressed them. If the punishment for their sins was that God withdrew his presence, they prayed that somehow God would forgive their sins and come back to them his temple. They recognized this and they taught their children this, that they needed God to come back to them or they would be unmade. And for that, they needed the forgiveness of sins. And the Jews had created all different ways of getting it. But the goal for all different types of Jews was always the same, the forgiveness of sins and the return of God to his people. But what Jesus says here might be the most, one of the most unique, but also one of the most obvious things he ever said. And he said it in a lot of ways during his ministry, but he says it most clearly here. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Or even more explicitly, in the verse after the Lord's Prayer, he says, For if you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others your, their sins, neither will heaven, your Father forgive your sins. It seems pretty fair and obvious, doesn't it? Do you ever have some kind of amazing epiphany all of a sudden about something that you've been doing your daily life for all three years that was completely dumb? When I was in college, I bought a bunch of body wash at the store for really cheap, and I was really excited about it because I thought I got a really great deal. But then over the next year or so, I realized that the way the bottle was designed was really stupid. There was like this curve at the bottom uh, that made it so you couldn't stand it up straight. <laughs> Whenever you tried to stand it up, it would fall down. I got really annoyed with it for no less than a year. Every time I took a shower, I tried to stand it up on its bottom, and it would fall off the ledge and just sit on the bottom of the tub, and I would be fuming. My roommates would always walk into the shower, and my body wash would be on the floor of the tub. What could have possibly possessed anyone to make a bottle of body wash that doesn't stand up on its own? One day, I realized that actually, the way the body wash was made was so that you can stand it up on its top, like you see in the picture, so the soap is easy to get out. <laughs> it was genius. How did I not think of it? Just turn it over. It's like a full year. <laughs> Jesus was suggesting something really similar to just turn it over. <laughs> The Jews during this time tried practically everything to get the forgiveness of sins. The thing they tried the most was just revolting against their pagan rulers and testing to see if God was with them, like trying to put it up on the bottom when the bottom doesn't stand up. It was a bloody time and it never worked. 
But what Jesus said was just about the most obvious thing that nobody ever thought of. If you want to be forgiven, forgive others. Just turn it over. The nation of Israel suffered for years under the yoke of foreign rulers, but they only were suffering because of their own sin. And they recognized that. Well, Israel, if you want the forgiveness of sins, start by forgiving those Gentile nations that are oppressing you. It was especially practical because through Jesus, those Gentiles would actually join the people of God, just like the Old Testament said. Jesus was saying, Jews, these Gentiles are soon going to be just as much a children of God as you are. God's going to break down the dividing wall between you and them. And you're going to have to welcome them into your synagogues, and because of it. If you want that forgiveness of sins thing, you better start forgiving them for what their ancestors did hundreds of years ago. There are all kinds of divisions in the Jewish people, too. Essenes and Zealots and Pharisees and Sadducees. And Jesus was going to break down those barriers, too. If they wanted the forgiveness of sins, they would also have to forgive their Jewish brothers and sisters. One day, they would all feast together in Jesus' kingdom. The day was coming, so it would be awkward if they don't forgive each other. It's genius in so many ways. Just turn it over. We're all in the same boat, too. We all need the forgiveness of sins, or God won't be present with us. If God's not present with us, then we're going to be unmade. So what we need to do is forgive one another. That guy that slighted you, or the person who said some stupid thing on social media, may just show up to church one day. <laughs> and it would be really weird for you to be angry about it and not excited. He might ask you to come to dinner and talk to him about Jesus, and you're going to want to be ready for it. Heck, the person you have beef with might actually be at church today. We're about to have love feasts. It'll be real, real awkward for that person to be passing you the grace and for him to be, for him to be filled with the Spirit and for you to look back at him with anything other than love in your eyes. And I get it. Some of these sins that Jesus is calling us to forgive aren't just little slights or petty disagreements. They sure weren't during the time of Jesus. Those Gentiles, on a number of occasions, attempted something called cultural genocide, which is where they tried to keep the Jews from actually acting like Jews, so that their culture would die. They kept them from getting circumcised and going to the synagogue and worshiping God. That's a pretty big deal. But so are our sins against God, and Jesus forgave them. It would be real weird for someone to, who is filled to the brim with resentment to call themselves a Christian and proclaim that God forgives sins, isn't it? Even if we're 100% selfish, it's practical for us too. And I'm not just going to say that forgiveness is easier than anger. It's true to an extent. In the long run, living with resentment is really hard. And the longer you live with resentment, the harder it is to forgive. And it's a vicious cycle. But forgiveness is hard too. Forgiveness means taking the pain that some action caused you right on the chin and not giving it back to anyone. Every one of your bones screams out for vengeance. But with the help of God, you're just going to swallow that. It's not easy. But resentment warps you, and it's not a recipe for happy life. Even more than that, I've noticed recently that you tend to treat yourself the way that you treat others. If you're really judgmental of others, a lot of times you end up being really judgmental of yourself. If you're really mean to others, a lot of times you end up being really mean to yourself. And if you have a really hard time forgiving others, 
you're going to have a hard time forgiving yourself. Someday that resentment you have for others might just turn in on itself. And that's a really painful time. I think part of it has to do with the way that we see ourselves as representative of everyone else. People who are really generous tend to see other people as generous. People who care a lot about other people tend to think others care about them. In Proverbs 1, there's this really interesting point that thieves can't really trust anyone. They're out to get everyone else. So they naturally think that everyone else is out to get them. They think they lie in wait to steal from others, but in the end, they rob themselves of the ability to trust because they think everyone is kind of like them. If we want forgiveness, we're going to have to make an effort to forgive others. It almost sounds obvious, like that putting my bottle bottles of body wash upside down, but it's the way it is. And we all need God's forgiveness because we need God to be with us or we will destroy ourselves. And it's good for us anyway, because it makes it so that we can go to love feasts and things like that with actual sincere hearts. Finally, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This has always been one of the more confusing parts of the Lord's Prayer for me. I never understood why God would lead us into temptation at all. But some more research led me to something that has really helped me understand it which is that the word for temptation can also mean trial or tribulation or suffering. In other words, it is sometimes, but not always, a moral category. For instance, you would use the word when you're being tempted to sin, but also when you're suffering something really tough that has nothing to do with sin at all. In both cases, your commitment to God is being tested. In the ancient world, people made covenants or commitments with each other all the time, just like we do. For instance, one common type of covenant was where one nation would pledge loyalty to another nation in exchange for protection. In other words, a small country would tell a big country that they would be on their side whenever there's conflicts, um, and they would give them money and tribute. And the big country would use their army to keep out invaders from the small country. What often happened is that the loyalty of either country to their agreement would be put to the test. And that never really happened when things were good. So you could call it temptation slash trial slash suffering slash tribulation. For instance, the small country might get invaded and the loyalty of the big country is put to test. Will they actually protect the small country like they said they would? Or would they weasel out and let the small country get destroyed? Or maybe the big country falls on hard times for a while and the small country thinks that maybe it can get away with, pain, with not paying tribute for a while. Or maybe they can get another deal with one of their rivals. Whatever the case, covenants were really common in the ancient world. It was also common for someone to say that the people involved in the covenant were being put to the test, which means everyone finds out whether they were really committed to their covenant or if they were just trying to get the benefits of it without the commitment. The same was true with God's covenant with Israel. From the very beginning, there were times when both parties were being put to the test. Israel would have some foreign invader come in and that meant that God was put to the test. Would he protect them like he said he would? Or does he just want Israel's praise and sacrifice with none of the commitment? As you can imagine, God kept his commitments every time until Israel broke the covenant so severely and so often and so persistently that they needed to be punished for about after, after about 1,500 years. Meanwhile, Israel, as you can imagine, really didn't hold up well when they were put to the test like 99% of the time. Whenever Israel's neighbors told them that they needed to worship Baal or the rain wouldn't fall, 
they were being put to the test. Did they just want God's protection and blessing with none of the commitment? Most of the time, they went ahead and they worshipped Baal. It became clear that God, Israel, wasn't really serious about their commitment. The same thing happens with us, too. Whenever you're tempted, you're being put to the test. That's just naturally the way it is. Are you serious about God? Or do you just want what he gives you and don't want any of the commitment? Honestly, it's not something that you really can know until you've been tested, whether by staying firm in your faith through suffering or through temptation. That's not to say that when we are being tempted that God is tempting us. James says that no one should say when he's being tempted that God is tempting you, because God is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt us with it. But James also says, just before that, count all joys, my brothers, when you meet, and notice that it's the same word that's used for temptation, trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing, which is the same word again, of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So not only is testing and temptation sometimes necessary, it can actually be good for us. I know there's lots of leaders in our church, uh, there's lots of teachers in our church, and I'm sure they all know that testing is an important tool for learning. If you aren't tested, you won't know how well you've learned. Maybe there's some big gap in your knowledge that you wouldn't have recognized otherwise. It's the same when we are tested. We don't know what's really going on in our hearts until temptation or suffering exposes it. C.S. Lewis said, no man knows how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current, but good people do not know what temptation means. That is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find the strength, find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who really knows to the full what temptation means. So if trials and temptations and tribulations, and whatever we call them, are good for us sometimes, why should we pray to God to spare us some of them? And I think the answer to that is pretty simple. They're hard, they're not fun, and they're not something that you want to, ha you want to happen to you. I, for one, would prefer not to go through tribulations. If it is possible, I would prefer to become the Christian I'm supposed to be and do the work I'm supposed to do in a painless way. I don't know about you, but your loyalty to a commitment isn't really put to the test while things are going well, right? A marriage commitment isn't best tested at the wedding or the honeymoon when things are going great. They're tested when you're feeling a bit tired of your spouse. An alliance between nations isn't tested when there's peace, but when invaders are on the borders. Tribulations and temptations and trials aren't fun, but I guess they're part of being in a fallen world. And they have the added advantage of giving us information about how serious we really are about our commitments. There are even times when it is necessary, even if it isn't strictly good for us, that we suffer. For some truly evil things, Christians are simply called to bear the suffering of the world. 
In this way, we are kind of like Christ. Because just like he did on the cross, we soak up the evil things that are done to us, but we don't throw them back on the world's face. We bear that suffering without making more of it. And we bear that suffering on behalf of others. When we see other people suffering, we get close to them and suffer along with them so that they won't be alone. And ultimately, we cast that suffering on the, on the shoulders of Jesus because he cares for us. But what's kind of surprising to me about this prayer is that you're praying for something that may just end up being answered with no. Of course, I'm not sure why that's surprising. I pray, I pray plenty of times for things that end up being answered with a no. But for Jesus to preach us to pray it, teach us to pray it, that sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? But there's something beautiful and childlike and intimate about us asking God to do something for us that might not be good for us, but which we want. There's something endearing about a kid asking for ice cream, even if you don't give it to them, right? It shows that they depend on you to give good gifts, but trust if you if they don't give it to you. Isn't that kind of cool? Whatever the case, we know that there was once a time when Jesus himself prayed this prayer and the answer was no. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And ultimately, we know that the answer was no. You're going to have to go through the trial and the tribulation and the suffering of the cross, and the temptation to violently use with your power to save yourself. And you're going to bear the full evil of the world for its salvation in accordance with the scriptures. But in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were tempted and tested and disobeyed, and it showed that they wanted the blessings of God without any kind of commitment to keeping them around. In the same way, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ was tempted and tested and he obeyed, showing that he was fully committed to bringing the presence of God back to the world. Israel was constantly tempted to worship other gods and to shirk their responsibilities as those who would bear God to the world. Christ on the cross was also tempted to shirk his responsibility and to call down legions of angels to save him. For where Israel's, Israel failed, Christ succeeded. And in so doing, he redeemed all of Israel and fulfilled their world by bearing God back to the whole world. And, that, and what that means is that whenever we are suffering or tempted or facing trials, Jesus is right there next to us, suffering and being tempted and facing trials with us. Even when it, when it seems like God isn't there for us, know that the one who cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is suffering alongside you. And he can empower you to suffer well, to resist temptation, and to pass the trial. And finally, we pray that God would deliver us from evil. And just like the word for temptation isn't just a moral category, Evil also isn't just a moral category. It is sometimes, but not always. Evil in the ancient world didn't just mean stuff like stealing from your neighbor, but hurricanes coming and knocking down your house, or suffering like hunger. That's evil too. For that reason, you can pray, deliver us from evil, not just when you're being tempted, but when you're, you are suffering and depressed. And those really aren't all that different, because suffering does have its own temptations involved. The answer to this question is always eventually going to be yes. It was true for Christ when the whole world did its absolute worst to him, and he bore every last bit of it. Nevertheless, God delivered him from evil by raising him from the dead, and he conquered all the corrupt governments and the full evil of humans and all the demonic powers. 
and his father gave him a seat at his right hand, and he is worshipped and glorified. In the same way, we will also be delivered from evil. If not right here, then when God raises us, us up from the dead, and we live in his presence in the new Jerusalem forever. The Lord's Prayer is one that is really fitting to think about the four love feasts. It calls us to consider, as we will, how the actions that we have taken have sullied God's name and made it so that God's reputation through the earth isn't what it should be. We pray that God will transform our hearts so that we can show the world who God really is. But it calls us to hope for the, that day when God's kingdom really does come to earth and sets the whole world right. But not in the way that we want, but in the way that God wants. Because he is wiser than we are. It asks for those provisions that we need to do God's work, but also allows us to envision the day when God feeds us through feasting in his heavenly kingdom. It calls us, before we come to the table, to forgive the sins of others, so that God forgives our sins in his presence in our midst. And it makes us follow the example of Christ in staying faithful to him, even through trials and suffering, knowing that one day we will, like him, be delivered from evil. Finally, it prepares us with humble and sincere hearts, not boasting or bragging about our own spirituality, and it makes us ready to serve and wash each other's feet as Jesus did. <laughs>